All right, well, let's go ahead and get started. I'm sure more folks will, will, will trickle in, but I have a decent amount um, to get to today. Um, and so we'll go ahead and start with prayer. Father, thank you for uh, just this beautiful day. God, we, we love every day that you give us, but certainly um, the this time of year um, with the change of seasons and um, the reprieve from the heat, we just are so thankful for just the weather that you give us, the variety of um, seasons. We just thank you for it. We, it helps us to remember that you're a great God that's in control of everything. Father, we pray that you'd be with us in this session today, that you would help us to um, engage with um, this uh, material and, and with your word and what you have for us. We pray that we would have open hearts um, that are humble and uh, quick to hear um, what you have for us. We pray that for the uh, worship um, hour next hour that uh, our hearts would remain open um, to your word um, convict us of our sin and help us to um, repent um, and remember that Christ has paid for our sins and it's in his name we pray amen um, so this week is uh, <coughs> continuing in our book what is a healthy church member it's a little book um, uh, from nine marks um, and this week, the topic is a committed member. Uh, I don't, I, I've never written a book, but if I were to write this book, I don't know that I wouldn't have put this material at the beginning. <laughs> um, because what we're going to be talking about today and spending a decent amount of time with is what is the, what is the biblical um, justification for this idea of church membership in the first place? Um, and so we're going to talk through that. We'll spend a little bit of time talking about, um, you know, what com what commitment looks like. Um, and then um, my goal is just like the book to spend some time with like practical applications. So now that we've established that church membership is a biblical idea and that we should be committed church members, how does that play out in the day to day of our life? Um, and so we talked previously about this idea of the healthy church member. Um, really being a synonym for a healthy Christian. Um, so, and we, we also established that we don't really have a context for someone being a Christian apart from some local expression of community of believers. And that has looked vastly different over the course of church history. Um, but the way it has kind of landed now um, is we have lots of different expressions of local churches, different denominations and different flavors um, and so it's not necessarily that we have to be in a specific local expression um, that has a specific characteristic, but that we are committed to other uh, Christians um, in community and loving God um, through Christ and loving each other. And the book kind of superimposes the nine marks of a healthy church um, with these nine marks of a healthy Christian. So it's uh, of a healthy church member. So it's not possible to have a healthy church because the church is made up of individuals. Um, it's not possible to be a healthy church without having healthy church members. So that's, it's kind of one of those things that is um, synonymous. We talked previous weeks. Healthy church members are expositional listeners, listening to God's word in a particular way, starting with God, understanding the true meaning of the text, and then applying it. We talked about um, church members being biblical theologians, not in the sense that we have uh, PhDs in um, some specific study of the Bible, but that we 
are dedicated to learning those main themes of scripture and trying to protect ourselves and protect others from false teaching or unsound teaching. Um, we talked about being gospel saturated, um, that the gospel is what should start um, how we should think about um, being a church member. We should be saturated. Sheldon spent a lot of time talking about being saturated in the gospel and then being able to, if we're saturated ourselves, being able to um, help others be saturated in the gospel. Um, I was here a couple weeks ago talking about being genuinely converted. So um, this contrast between the emotional decision-making kind of thing. Jeremy also talked about that last week. Um, and then last week was biblical evangelist. So part of the work of the church is evangelism. And so again, if the work of the church is evangelism, then the work of the individual Christians that make up the church should be about evangelism. Um, and that we don't need to be experts and have the perfect oration of the way to tell people about God. It's a very simple thing. Um, and so we don't have to be um, professional evangelists um, in order to be evangelistic in the way that we approach our life. Um, and so this week we're going to be talking about being a committed member. And um, this topic is heavy. Generally speaking, it's heavy, but it's especially heavy in our church context. And so um, I don't want to I don't want to pretend that that's not our our story for the last several months. Um, that commitment has not been something that has not um, necessarily been um, a strength for us, and we've we've um, experienced a lot of heartbreak and loss and um, things that uh, healthy churches um, um, would hope would not happen. And so I don't, I'm not going to pretend that that's not our story, but I do want us to speak about this idea of being a church member, committed church member in the context of our story, because I think there's some lessons that we can learn about um, where we've been, um, but more importantly, much more importantly, um, where we're going, where we're going as a church, where we're going as individual believers that have um, committed to this specific body. Um, and so I'm going to break things down by first talking about the idea of commitment and what that means, um, generally speaking, but what that means in the context of a church um, and being committed to a church. Um, and then we're going to spend some time talking about what church membership means from a biblical perspective. And spoiler alert for that, we don't have a book in the Bible that talks about this is the way for church mem this is the way church membership exists. This is exactly how you should do it. This is what it is, what it isn't. Um, but there's a lot of very clear inference um, throughout Scripture, but certainly in the New Testament and the um, uh, the letters to the churches. But just the idea that there's churches to write letters to indicates that there's a community of believers that are committed to each other, um, but there's not a specific scripture. So kind of like some of those other themes in the Bible, like the Trinity, we don't have a, a chapter and verse that says, this is exactly what the Trinity is defined as. Um, but we know from the totality of scripture that that is um, a trueness about God. So first commitment, this idea of commitment. What do, what do you all think of when you hear that word commitment or committed? plan to stick with something yeah okay marriage it's on my notes you didn't see my notes did you? Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
Um, so yeah, I think both of those. So marriage is a is a is a thing. Marriage is a great um, description, but it it, it kind of ties in what you said about having a plan to stick with something. The idea of commit. So if I looked it up in the dictionary, the dictionary says the state or quality of being dedicated to a cause, activity, or something similar. Um, <clears throat> so I would I would argue that the idea of commitment is both a decision. Right, you decide to marry this person. You decide to commit to a church, right? And then a process or a plan that you put into place that helps you grow in your dedication to the initial commitment. So this commitment is like a, a once and continuing process. And we should look at our commitment to our local church in the same way. Um, we, uh, if we have become members of of our church of this church. There was a moment in time where either we individually or we as a couple or family decided, made a made a place in time decision, you know, to to commit to join a, a church, right? Um, and then we had our official, you know, coming out party in front of the congregation at some one of the Sunday mornings where we said, we're going to join this church. We're going to commit to this church. Um, but that doesn't that didn't stop on that day just like it didn't stop when we first made that initial decision. So when Deanna and I decided to join this church, we obviously talked to the elders, we talked to the pastors, um, but that idea of commitment was not a once and only one-time point decision. It was a decision that we made that came with things that followed it. So commitment is not is not a surface level yes or no. It's a I'm making a commitment and then I'm going to build depth to that commitment. So there's this idea of you're continually, every time you come to church on Sunday, every time you um, do the things that we'll talk about with practical application as part of the church, we are committing again and again and again and we're depth, building depth to that commitment. In the same way marriage is waking up every morning with this person who is totally other from you and aggravates you in some ways and... and um, and they're just they have different opinions about things and but you have committed once at first and then you have developed a plan for continuing that commitment um, to stick with that person and if you stayed at that surface level i made my vows and that's it um, there's no depth to the relationship and so when we talk about some of the application that um, uh, of what it means to actually do this We'll talk about the idea that this, just like your marriage is a relationship or your family is a relationship, your relationship to your church is a relationship that is a, a give and take um, and approaching it with a level of commitment. Um, so the idea, how do we become committed to a church? Um, one of the things that comes up again and again in scripture when um, especially Paul, but others describe this idea of like committing to getting together, committing to one another, is this idea of like-mindedness. So Romans 12, 16 says, Be of the same mind toward another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. That is uh, not ESV. Um, ESV says live in harmony, um, but more of the, at least English translations, say be of the same mind, which I think gets more to this like-mindedness. Obviously, if you're like-minded, then you're going to have harmony with others. But that idea, so that uh, New King James, the 
uh, NASB uh, legacy standard all say, be of the same mind towards another. And we see that same command or that same instruction from Paul and Peter uh, in Romans, in 2 Corinthians, in Philippians, in 1 Peter. There's several verses that say that same exact thing, be of like mind. So like-mindedness is a function of humility. We get that in Romans 12, this idea of um, don't set your mind on high things, associate with the humble. So be humble. So the like-mindedness is, a, is, is approached in a, in, a, in a humility thing. It's not, and it's not just an intellectual attainment. It's not, this is not just intellectual. So when we think about like-mindedness, our specific church context, um, we uh, have a, a statement of faith and we have affirmed the uh, London Baptist Confession of Faith as something that kind of guides the way that we approach things. And so when we think about that, that kind of helps us with doctrinal distinctives, but that doesn't really get to the like-mindedness thing. Um, so when we say that we affirm the London Baptist Confession, a guest who comes to our church would walk in and kind of expect certain things about our worship service. They would expect certain things to be preached from the pulpit, a certain perspective to be preached. But that doesn't mean that that guest, who might not hold to those things, can't be part, can't be like-minded with us uh, as a church. So that um, kind of difference between like-mindedness, this idea that we are uh, loving each other and keeping the primary things primary, um, but not overemphasizing doctrinal distinctives or taking doctrinal distinctives and making them kind of the, the, the only way that you can be part of our church context. Um, and I think we get into trouble when we do that, when we elevate doctrinal distinctives over what Christ has actually told us to do. We have doctrinal distinctives. We hope that as people um, wrestle with scripture as our primary authority over, the, over a period of time, that they would see that the, the things that are described in, our, in the statement of faith that we hold to, that they would come to believe those things, and that, that would help us with unity in the way that we think about things, but that doesn't get to this idea of like-mindedness, this idea that we are um, connected to each other. Um, and so I was actually reading a book that was not related to this topic this week, and I kind of was struck by it. Um, and I have a quote, it's a little bit of a longer quote and it kind of has some ellipses because the author tends to ramble a little bit. Um, my personal opinion. Um, so it says when it, he's, so the book is about this idea of building intentional Christian communities and what that looks like. And one of the chapters talks about membership unity and like-mindedness. And he says, when it comes to life in our modern congregations, we think we have to guard against this idea of mindless conformity, when what really threatens our spiritual health is radical individualism. The scripture tells us what we should be laboring for, striving for, and praying for. We are commanded to strive for like-mindedness, to be of one mind. Our task is assigned, and that's what we should focus on. And then later he talks about this idea of radical independence, or what we think of as this individualism. He says, true independence of mind exists when there can be disagreement without demonizing the one you differ with. And this cannot be done unless you let scripture instruct you on how to distinguish things that are of first importance, this like-mindedness idea, versus things that are of much lesser importance, which 
we could probably put some of our doctrinal distinctives down there. Unity and like-mindedness are a function of being apprehended by and apprehending Christ. Um, so I think that just gets to this idea that we, um, we get into trouble when we elevate our doctrinal distinctives above what we should be doing. We should be focused on the very basics of the Christian faith. Um, yes, we can dig into doctrinal distinctives. Yes, we should disagree at times and uh, iron sharpens iron and all that, but that shouldn't be the way that we um, focus our attention. Uh, Ephesians 4, the whole chapter, I'm going to kind of quote the whole chapter kind of throughout this um, lesson, but 4, 15, and 16, rather speaking truth and love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is head unto Christ, from, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint which, with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So this idea that we are joined together through Christ and that when we are joined together this way and we have this humility and this like-mindedness and our disposition towards striving for that, um, that's when our body grows. And it's not necessarily numerically, but it grows in spiritual strength and spiritual uh, like likeness with Christ. The author of the book talks about some incorrect views on engagement. I, I think every chapter kind of starts with, this is what I'm not talking about, which I think is a, a, a good way of, of, of uh, approaching things. So he's, he gives uh, five eyes um, that are incorrect views on engagement with the local church. So the first is indifference. So this idea that I could take it or leave it. Um, my engagement with the local church is on my terms, and if someone upsets me or somebody does something, then I can just find somewhere else, or um, I don't really have any, I don't want to put any stake in the game there. The, the next is ignorant, um, which is the idea that the, a person could be uninformed um, on the scriptural basis for church membership. Uh, somebody could be indecisive, somebody that can't make up their mind on placing membership. They've you know, been in a church context for a while, but they don't want to actually make a decision, a commitment decision, um, and that can um, guide other areas of their life. Um, the fourth is independent. Um, and so we talked a little bit about this um, at, you know, at the beginning of this, but certainly in the last, my last um, lesson, this idea of a Lone Ranger Christian. This idea that um, if they come to church, um, they don't necessarily need to come to church because they have Jesus in their heart and they can pray to God without needing to come to church. Um, I think we've established throughout this um, class that we don't have a context in Scripture for a Lone Ranger Christian, somebody that does Christianity in isolation. There's too many commands. There's too many instructions in the New Testament that say, really in the whole of the Bible, um, that say you can't do this by yourself. So that first, that idea is not um, scriptural. So they're, they're um, putting some black ink to some of their scripture, a lot of their scripture, to, to have that mentality. But if they do come to church, it's very much about them. They're coming here to consume. Um, they're taking what they need. They're gonna remain unattached. Um, they, don't wanna, they don't want the burdens, that membership in a church, that connection with others um, get, would give them. Um, and they don't want people in their business. That's their mentality, and that's unfortunately in our individualistic society a fairly common view. 
but they don't get any of the benefits either. Because coming to worship service or, or any church context just to consume is shallow and hollow and will never really um, satisfy because that's not the purpose of church in the first place. Um, you can listen to a podcast. You can do a lot of different things to consume things. But coming into a church context in that way is not ideal. Um, this is a, there, The fifth was inverted, which I didn't really understand what the terminology meant. I think he was trying to stick with the eyes across the board, keep <laughs> eyes. But he says inverted, and he describes it as an attachment to some kind of a, like a home church or your youth, the church of your youth. Um, and you can't commit to a local body where you live because you've got a, a, you know. So we saw, you know, I saw this a lot when I was in, um, in college. There were a lot of my college colleagues that were like, well, um, I don't, you know, my home church is 300 miles away and I'll go there when I'm on break. I don't really want to commit to a church here. And, you know, there's some validity to that. There's, pe- there's people that know you at your home church, but you really should commit to um, a church uh, where you're at geographically and so forth. And this all stems, all these different incorrect views on engagement with the local church stem from failing to understand what God's intent for the local church is um, and that he believes or God explains or tells us that this is a central aspect to the life of his people. Yeah. Yeah, when I was overseas, um, mm. our, in the military, we had our churches off base and whatever and we had people do the same thing they would come we're still a member of our church back there in the states but they were attending our church the, mm-hmm. the church that we had established without wanting to join the yeah church. my pastor would reteach them that no you need to join if there's a local church available this is where you need yeah. to be because how can you minister and tithe and do whatever you're doing you're way over there yeah and you should be here doing that doing those things man that's great yeah i think a lot of people get caught up in this well i have to, it's a, you know it is a big deal to join a church but membership is transferable <laughs> i mean truly like when we're talking about the local church that is a local expression of christ's church big c church the catholic church lower c catholic right to not just not make us uh in with the romanists right so we're uh Little C Catholic, Big C Church is across all nations and time since Christ instituted it uh, after his uh, resurrection, right? But there are local expressions of his church, and we should be committed and connected to them whenever possible. And that's not to say that, you know, you're overseas for six months and you have to hurry up and join a church. Like, it does take time. You want to make sure that it's a healthy church. That's part of what we're talking about here. Um, but we also don't want to delay because we're worried about, okay, I'm, I have a church at home and I you know, don't want to make that commitment. So um, all of this presupposes church membership and the idea that church membership is a biblical idea um, and that it's an important idea. Um, and so the author breaks down this argument, this very brief argument for the scriptural um, support of church membership in three ways. I think the third is a little bit iffy, but he, he makes it. Um, the first is the idea of church leadership, which is clearly described in scripture. Um, the second is um, <clears throat> no, I'm blanking. church discipline, again, clearly described in scripture from Christ, uh, and, and then most notably uh, in First and Second Corinthians. And then he makes an argument 
uh, for church lists, the idea that we have an accountable or account of people um, on our on our that we have lists of people. So, <clears throat> as I mentioned at the beginning, this idea of church membership is not explicitly um, described, but the things that we'll talk about are explicitly described and by necessary. I think the the confession says by necessary. Help me. Good and necessary. Good and necessary consequence. Um, we can assume that church membership is something that um, is biblical. Um, the the author says New Testament practices and commands lose their meaning if membership is not practiced, visibly identifiable, and important. Uh, so this idea of church leadership. Um, so our church, and and if you're listening, or in case you didn't know, our church is an elder led church. Um, so our church. Uh, holds that scripture teaches that local congregations should be led by a plurality of elders. So that is in contrast to a, a more congregational style church where kind of there, there are elders that shepherd the, the um, church, but the congregation kind of votes kind of more democratically about everything that happens. Um, and so we hold um, to what the confession says uh, and what scripture says that our church is led by elders, a plurality of elders. Um, I'm an elder and Sheldon is an elder currently. So there's uh, there's that. So don't take this as uh, just because the elder is teaching you about <laughs> church leadership that, um, that uh, you have to do everything I say. That's not the point. The point is that we, we believe that scripture teaches that. Um, and that means that the elders are responsible. We're held to a higher standard um, according to scripture but we are responsible for overseeing our congregation leading and overseeing our congregation um the two big uh, scripture passages that talk about this and i won't read it for the sake of time but the two big scripture passages that talk about the qualifications of an elder are first timothy 3 1 through 13 and and titus 1 5 through 9 those are the kind of the qualifications for elder but what it does say by context is um, Paul tells um, Timothy and Titus to appoint elders in every town, which means that every town has elders and by good and necessary consequence, they have people, a group of people that are clearly defined that they oversee. And he talks about them being overseers, the definition and what he talks about is even though he's talking about their qualifications and what qualifies and disqualifies them, he talks about them as being overseers and they can't be overseers if they don't have people to oversee. So the, the understanding is that we there's a this biblical office of elder and deacon. So um, Timothy talks about the deacon, the office of deacon as well. The deacons are caring for a congregation, a group of people that are clearly defined, and the elders are leading and overseeing. And there's explicit instructions for overseers to shepherd the flock. That's the congregate, that's the terminology that, that is used in those. And so a shepherd, so we're kind of, if we we don't know about shepherding right in 2023, but if we bring ourselves back to that time where shepherding was a common practice. And we see examples of Jesus in his teachings talking about shepherding and going after the lost sheep, right? The shepherd knows who his flock is. So there's not an ambiguity about who's in the about what sheep are in the flock. 
it's very clear that the shepherd knows who is in the flock and the shepherd is to oversee that flock. And so it doesn't make sense for Paul to be teaching these things if there's not a clearly defined, visibly identifiable group of people that are being oversaw, overseen, um, overseen, oversaw by um, these elders. <clears throat> and in Hebrews 13, um, verse 7 says, Remember your leaders or your elders or your overseers, those who spoke you the word uh, of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. And then Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So there's again this idea of the author of Hebrews saying, so, so Paul is ex clearly explaining this is what an elder is, this is what an overseer is, and this is what they do. And then in the author of Hebrews, we can debate about who that is, right? Um, but the author of Hebrews is saying, now you people, you flock, this, is your this should be your disposition towards these leaders that Paul has talked about in his, um, <clears throat> in his scripture. So this instruction doesn't make any sense if there's not an identifiable group that is attached in some formal way um, to each other and to these overseers to lead. And likewise, the command to obey and submit doesn't make any sense if there's not a group of people that are having to obey and submit. Um, so that's the first kind of argument from scripture for this idea of church membership. The second is um, church discipline. And so um, kind of the famous passage for how church discipline is to work is in Matthew 18. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens, you have gained your brother. If he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, um, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Again, harping back to Old Testament biblical law about two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. What's the church? If we don't have church membership, there's a church here that's being assumed by Christ when he's talking about this. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. A Gentile is outside of the camp. So we're talking about a visible, distinctive church. And if you have to discipline somebody that's in this visible, distinctive church, you got to put them somewhere. Well, if, you're, if, if there's not a visibly identifiable church, then there's nowhere for this person to go. Um, so what Christ is, uh, is assuming is that there's a distinctive, visible place where Christians gather together and sin against each other and hopefully uh, repent and reconcile from with each other. But if they don't, if there's somebody that doesn't, then we're gonna take them out of this church context. We're gonna remove them um, from, from membership in this church. In 1 Corinthians uh, 5, Paul tells them to get rid of this guy that's in sexual immorality and is refusing to repent. And he does that, he says, let him be, as, um, remo let him be removed from among you from among a group, kick them out. <clears throat> and it, can someone read, sorry, I should have asked ahead, 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 13.
say 9 through 13? Yeah, 9 through 13. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he should be an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. So the whole context of what Paul is talking about here is like there is a, there is a group of people that are visibly identifiable and they do things together. They eat dinner together, and they don't associate with people in certain ways that are um, of the world, are outside of their context. So we judge, we do judge within ourselves. We'll talk about what that means, um, not in a judgmental way, but we'll talk about caring for each other in that way. <clears throat> but um, there's a context. These are commands uh, that Paul gives are not possible if there's not a distinct knowable body of believers. The last uh, that the author talks about is this idea of church lists, and he gives a couple of uh, uh, scriptures. He says in 1 Timothy 5 that Paul talks about a list of widows in the church, um, and then in 2 Corinthians 2.6 to kind of revisit this idea of, of the man being removed from the church, he says that there was a majority vote that removed that man from the church, um, and so his his our assertion, although I think we probably have made the point with just the first two, this idea of church, um, church discipline, um, and um, I don't like it on this, and uh, church leadership. Sorry, leadership and discipline. Those contexts are enough for us to establish the essential nature of um, church membership. And so he kind of finishes this section by saying the essential commandment that we have is love. So he says, a healthy Christian is one who is committed to expressing this kind of love towards other Christians. And the best place for Christians to love this way is in the assembly of God's people um, called the local church. So the local church is a way, if we are to take these commands, these instructions that God has given us through the writers of the New Testament seriously, then the best way for us to do that is in the local church setting. Um, loving each other. So with the, re the last 15 or 20 minutes that we have, let's spend some time with application. So now we've established that um, church membership is an essential aspect uh, of the Christian life. Um, and we've talked a little bit about what commitment means. Um, and so when we think about how do we actually apply this and do it in our context, um, the, so the first scripture is Ephesians 4, 11 through 16, and I'll read that. Um, I don't know if we have time. 1 Corinthians 12, if someone wants to pull up 1 Corinthians 12, um, 12 through 31, it's a longer scripture, a longer verse, but um, kind of gets to that point as well. So Ephesians 4, 11 through 16 says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we attain to the unity of faith and, to the, and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, 
speaking truth and love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, with each part working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So this, um, this idea that we are together and that individually we're going to grow, there's growth that occurs in a healthy church um, through the things that uh, Paul talks about here. Um, and the goal is to give glory to God. Um, does anyone have 1 Corinthians 12 pulled up? Either one. Well, just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. But the foot shall say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it, as it is, there are no parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor and our unpresentable parts are treated with great modesty, which, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has no, me, but God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care one for another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, gift of healing, helping, administration, and various uh, kinds of tongues. Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles, do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts. And I will, and I will, and I will show you a still more excellent way. Awesome. So this is kind of Paul's big. I know it's a longer um, passage, but this is Paul's kind of big description of what the local church looks like. It probably is a description of what the. The big C or big C church looks like as well, but this idea that we're all connected to each other, that God has appointed us to be in the church context that we're in, um, and He has put us here for a certain reason. And there's there's not just an idea of complementariness, like this idea that 
we complement each other with our strengths and weaknesses, but also that we need each other. Like there's this sense of, of, of need. We have to have this. We are not going to be healthy Christians. We are not going to be faithfully walking with Christ if we're outside of this context, for better or worse. <clears throat> so he goes through a bunch of different, uh, the author goes through a bunch of different application points. The first he says is regular attendance. Um, so the idea that you can't um, be a healthy church member, a committed member of a local congregation and not attend regularly. Does it mean every Sunday? Does it mean you are here every time the lights are on? Um, no, but it does mean that you're present, known, and active in, in your um, connection to the church. The next he says is to seek peace, that, we sh that as committed church members, we should always be trying to seek peace. Um, Romans 14, 17 through 19 says, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Um, and there's um, obviously other scripture that talks about this idea of pursuing peace, actively pursuing peace. Um, Christ talks about in the Sermon of the Mount, blessed are the peacemakers. Um, this is an idea that we are trying to seek peace. If, if our body doesn't function correctly, um, in 1 Corinthians, if our body is not functioning correctly, um, it is because um, there's opportunity for us to seek peace with each other. We need each other. And if we don't have peace with each other, then we can't mutually outbuild each other. Um, the next is edifying others, going back to Ephesians 4. Um, the purpose of gathering, the gathering of the church, is first um, and foremost to worship God and to honor God. That's what we should be doing. But also, one of the benefits of um, the gathering of the church is mutual edification. And so we get that by edifying each other. A healthy, committed member comes to serve, comes to give and provide and not to be a consumer. Uh, the next point is watching over others. So we talked about uh, church discipline and what that looks like in context. But um, And next week, um, Sheldon is going to teach kind of a, a, there's a chapter on this idea of um, seeking discipline. Um, but we want to watch over others um, for their physical needs but also we wanna to try to help them avoid pitfalls and grow in their holiness and sanctification. And so we should be actively involved in each other's lives, not in an in a intrusive, gossipy way, um, but we should be involved in each other's lives in a way that will help us to watch over each other, to help people when they're weak um, and to keep them um, from the pitfalls um, that this world provides us. The next is pursuing reconciliation. So this is the idea that um, if we are uh, healthy Christians and we understand what God has done for us, that we were enemies of God and he has reconciled us through Christ, our offense to God was so great that it required Christ's um, death, then how could we not pursue reconciliation at every opportunity and the times that we don't pursue reconciliation are the times when we forget what God has done for us, what God has reconciled us from. We offended God far more deeply than we could ever offend each other 
and he still reconciled us. And so 2 Corinthians 5, um, that after that passage, talks about this idea that the ministry of reconciliation has been given to us. And the context is, it talks about how God has reconciled us to himself through Christ and that he is giving us, this is one of the things that he gives us through the spirit. He gives us this, this ministry of reconciliation. And so um, the practical application of that, and Jesus talks about this in the Sermon on the Mount, if you're offering a gift on the altar, if you're coming to church and there's um, something that, remember that your brother has something against you, Leave your gift there before the altar. Don't go worship God. First reconcile to your brother and then come back and offer your gift. So this idea that we are pursuing reconciliation that is part of our ministry as Christians um, in the local church context. And the next is bearing with others. Um, so this idea of bearing others' burdens, their disappointments, their frustrations, their offenses, um, Galatians 2 said, bear one another's burdens and so, so fulfill the law of Christ. Um, the next is par participating in the sacraments. Um, so we affirm that there's two sacraments, um, baptism and the Lord's Supper or communion. And so the, the context of that is that we should rejoice when someone gets baptized, like that they have made a public profession of faith is a beautiful thing. And if it doesn't give you goosebumps, then you need to connect with your local church a little bit better. Just, I mean, maybe you're not a goosebumps person, but that feeling that you get when you watch somebody make a public profession um, to their savior, to, to say that they're a sinner and they have no hope outside of what Christ has done for them and to publicly express that in the waters of baptism is a beautiful, amazing thing. And we should never never take that for granted. We should rejoice in that. And then with communion, and we talk about this in our worship service, communion is a solemn thing that we walk into. It is a, a God calls, or a, we, we, we believe it's a means of grace. And so you should be preparing your heart for communion as part of this idea of looking around at your, we are, we are celebrating this meal together. It's a figurative meal in a lot of ways, right? Nobody uh, invite somebody over and has um, crackers and grape juice. Um, but this idea that we are having a, a family meal and we're remembering what Christ has done for us um, and preparing your heart for that. And then the last point he makes is um, supporting the work of the ministry. And so we talk about this all the time. Like, what are ways that you can support what we're doing as a church? Giving... Um, time, resources, talent, whatever that looks like. <clears throat> and so to summarize, I want to go back actually to Ephesians 4, um, 1 through 6, and kind of talk about, so that whole chapter of Ephesians really is talking through this idea of what it means to be um, a, a church member um, or a, a Christian um, in the context of others. So Ephesians 4, 1 through 6 says, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a matter worthy of your calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, 
one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And I just want to say amen after that, right? It's not the end of his thought, but that's a, a benediction. Um, Stott, in his commentary on Ephesians, talks about the, being the five foundation stones of Christian unity um, that Paul is rolling out here. Humility is the first. You can't have unity without people that walk into um, a church con- local church context with humility. Genu- uh, gentleness, so the ESV says gentleness. Some, others ta- uh, some other translations call it meekness. Um, this, not this idea of um, being, I think gentleness is probably a better explanation. Um, patience, bearing with one another, and love. Um, and then again, Ephesians um, talks about this being the Spirit's work. So more explicitly, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about genuine conversion being the Spirit's work right from start to finish. But here we see that the unity of the church, the ability that we have to practice these foundational um, stones of Christian unity um, is the Spirit's work in us. Um, and we see this Trinity language again. This idea that God is Father of all. Um, and so we have this idea. So I'll just finish with, uh, we're right at time, but I'll finish with our confession um, that we hold to. London Baptist, uh, chapter 24, um, Uh, Paragraph 5 says, The Lord Jesus calls out of the world unto himself through the ministry of his word by his spirit those that are given unto him by his Father that they may walk before him in all ways of obedience which he prescribes to them in his word. Those thus called, he commands to walk together in particular societies or churches for their mutual edification and the due performance of that public worship which he requires of them in the world. The members of these churches are saints by calling, visibly manifesting and evidencing in and by their profession and walking, their obedience unto the call of Christ and do willingly consent to walk together according to the appointment of Christ, giving up themselves to the Lord and to one another by the will of God and profess subjection to the ordinances of the gospel. So this is this really a succinct way of describing what we're called to. We're called to come out of the world and into these particular societies so that we can be mutually edified, but also so that we can perf- we can perform public worship, which is what God asks us to do or tells us to do. Um, there's a lot of humility in this statement. There's a lot of giving. There's a lot of... Um, this idea that we are being obedient in the way that we approach church membership. Um, and so I think uh, it's a good place to end. Any closing thoughts or uh, ideas or criticisms? Or We'll stop recording, but then you can do the criticism. <laughs> <laughs> of course. You, you touched on, you early on compared to marriage. Um, yeah. I, I don't know if the book, did they touch on any of reasons why you would leave the church. Yeah. A different church. I mean, other than moving to a different location. Yeah, the, the book does not talk about when you should leave a church. Um, the, the book. And um, I don't think the confession deals with that as well. Um, 
I think obviously geographical location, if there's a geographical difference. Um, I, I interacted a little bit with Calvin uh, in his institutes when he talked about this. And in essence, his position was that you wouldn't leave a church unless there was a, a, there was a, a, a clear teaching that was against scripture. Um, now, uh, with, with the context of the 16th century versus, versus where we're at now, um, the temptation is for us to do two things, for us to overemphasize um, a particular style of worship um, and overemphasize <coughs> particular preachers or particular speakers or, or, or things like that and to kind of follow, right, the celebrity pastor thing um, or this feeling that I get when I go to a worship and the lights go down and the rock band starts playing and I, you know, they shoot uh, t-shirts out of the can. Those are extreme examples, but I think unfortunately that is the context that we're in. Um, my, my view is that you would not leave a church unless you were convicted that they were teaching something that was not according to scripture. Or, um, and we've had this happen in our church, you come to an understanding of a particular aspect of scripture that your church doesn't hold to and you can't remain in unity. Um, so the, a clear example or an easy example would be view on baptism. People can sometimes change their view on baptism, pedo versus credo baptism. And if that were to elevate in your mind to a level where you were not able to continue in fellowship with your current congregation because they held an opposite view, uh, then I think that would be a fair thing to do. I think the, I think the, if, if this, if what we're talking about, if this local church thing is really important and if it is an essential component of the Christian faith, um, then those kinds of conversations should be part of any kind of departure process. Um, so I can't point to, again, chapter and verse, but by good and necessary consequence, if what scripture tells us is true about a Christian community, then up and leaving just on a whim is, is a sin. It's sinful to do that because of what God calls us to in our connection to other people, other Christians. Um, and so first, if you think that there, if there's sin going on in the church and you're not saying something, then that's a problem because God, God tells us to be like-minded and he tells us to watch over others and to just leave because of perceived sin or real sin if you see it and not say anything and not discuss it with leadership is, is obviously problem um <clears throat> other thoughts these are and these are my opinions yeah. so yeah well, this is a not challenging one because the early church the context there there were sure yeah they simply mm -hmm. didn't have i would argue until the reformation just, really i'm I mean, gonna go to this church over here you know this house church over here that probably i'm assuming really that it wasn't a thing Really, I mean, up until the Reformation type period, I mean, there was you had one church. It was where you lived. There was a there was a early church in the town, right? The elders set up churches in the town, right? And then it morphed into the the Roman kind of ideal of church, and that was just you didn't have an option. Right. 
So how do we deal with the fact that we have options? And I think the options thing is a is legitimate question, a legitimate thing to think about, but it should be probably thought about on the front end of a decision to join a church and not on the back end. Josh, we're over time, so if y'all need to leave and get kids. Go. I think identity is such a, the idea, idea of identity is such a fundamental core thing that has to be wrestled with, um, especially like with what's going on in America mm -hmm. and the whole confusion about that. Um, it's, a, it's an extra, uh, the enemy is attacking that. Yeah. And I think of like Zechariah 3, where uh, the high priest is staying accused. Um, there was a sermon I listened to a while back. It was really good. But basically, it's just like the unity idea, right? It's like, how, how are we unified? How is any group of people unified? It's mm -hmm. what's, what's common, what's shared among them, right? Yeah. Um, and so we, we're told that we have the mind of Christ. Uh, not mind is developed and informed through the scripture. Mm -hmm. um, for what that's worth. Yeah. All right. Well, I'll pray for us and we can head to worship. Father, thank you for this time that we've had today. Thank you for being a great God. Thank you for giving us these um, these instructions and thank you for making it impossible for us to do by ourselves as messy as the church context and Christian communities can be we thank you for them we pray that you do it this specific uh, local church that you'd help us um, to grow in like-mindedness with each other that you'd help us to grow in unity um, and that you would send your spirit to enable us um, to do that we pray for reconciliation where that's needed pray for healing where that's needed and we just thank you that you don't leave us alone that you have given us each other and and that you have um, obviously given us Christ and so as we go to worship we pray that we would worship in spirit and truth that we would have our minds uh, and hearts open to what you have for us that we would walk into worship with the sole focus of honoring and giving you glory that you deserve and we pray all of this in Jesus name amen